Hi, this is Roger Hallam, and you're listening to Designing the Revolution. This is Talk 3, Part 1, The Wider Context. Okay, so in the last session, I was laying down a sort of standard heading for extinction, what to do about it, sort of talk that's been done thousands of times around the world. I was doing my version of it and um, it attempts to lay out the killer facts. And the conclusions were, the summary was that what we're dealing with here is superstructural. Uh, the whole of society is the plates on and cups on the table and the climate chaos is the superstructural super force which will destroy all that in so much as if you pull the tablecloth off the table, everything falls to the floor. That's the nature of, of what we're talking about. And we also made the conclusions that are pretty obvious, but that this is a universal, there's no part of the planet, no country which isn't going to be affected by that superstructural uh, possibility. And, and this event will happen forever, like it will continue forever, a hundred thousand years at least. And lastly, we um, summarised that what we're dealing with here, whether we like it or not, is mass death, death on a scale which has never been experienced in human history, and it is what it is. So what I'm going to do in this uh, talk is, as I say, look at the wider context. First of all, I want to look at some of the dynamics or understandings of how this whole, this whole thing works. Uh, and then I'm going to look at the connection between these physical processes and society, social processes, and how they interconnect, particularly in terms of how this information is communicated and interpreted in a social context, in the context of, you know, scientists making statements and um, news about the climate and uh, reports and such like. Okay, so the first dynamic I want to look at is is the relationship between the average and the extreme. Now, just to say initially, uh, just remind ourselves, when scientists come up with um, predictions, they are by definition estimates. And an estimate by definition couldn't be quite so bad, which of course a lot of climate deniers say, but they also, if they're gonna be logical, say, well, it could be a lot worse. So there's this, this ambiguity um, around the estimates. But the point here is that if you make an estimate, there's also a extreme possibility. So most estimates are what you might call normal distribution curves in the sense it's like a bell curve. It sort of goes up and then it goes down and you have these two long tails. And when you're looking at the consequences what you need to look at is not the centre of the curve, uh, the centre of the bell curve. What you need to look at is the worst extremity, because the worst extremity has massive uh, 
negative effects. So to illustrate this, I'm just going to give an example from my farming experience. So as I think I said on the first session, you know, I was a farmer for 25 years, used to grow a lot of different vegetables commercially. Um, for about yeah, two or three decades, I grow around 30,000 leeks a year in Wales. And on just about every year, I lose five, maybe 10% of the crop. You know, some of the plants are very good, they get a little bit diseased, to be a bit of a frost, to be, you know, these outliers. So it bobble up and down. And then one year, it was minus 15. It was like the coldest year for whenever hundreds, thousands of years, I can't remember, uh, about 15 years ago. And I think it was about minus 15 for two weeks. The upshot of it is, is the frost, the cold, went right into the core of the leaks. And once the core of the leak freezes, then the whole plant dies. Um, so if it's a little bit cold, you know, if it's minus 10, you might lose like half the leak, all these different layers, a bit like an onion. The Half of the outer layers disappear, go sludge. And But in the spring, the, the leak comes back and, you know, you might not have a great crop, but you've got a crop. But obviously, and it's obvious, at a certain point, you know, by definition, you will come to freezing the core of the leak and the core of the leak does. Now, death is quite sort of interesting in a sense that what the definition of death means is it doesn't come back. It doesn't continue forever. So in the spring of that year, all these leaks um, turn to sludge. I mean, the entire leak and the entire crop. So that year, my... Production wasn't, you know, 90, 95% of the number of leeks I planted. It was zero. I mean, literally zero. I didn't crop a single leak because of this extreme sort of point of where death happens. So, a sort of similar thing happens with human beings, of course. You know, you can go out at 39, you get really, really cold, you get frostbite, you come back, but you live. But at a certain point, it's so cold that your whole body uh, gets hypothermia and you die and you, you never come back. So what we're trying to say here is that at a certain point in a set of living entities, if they're extremely dry, extremely wet, extremely cold, extremely hot, then there's a point at which there's an exponential takeoff in the in the consequences so an example of this might be fires so in california i think you know don't, i haven't got the exact stats but i think four or five years ago one percent of california burned down because it was really hot and then um everyone thought that's terrible you know that's the most it's ever burned down ever and then two years later I think 2% of California uh, had forest fires. And um, the point here is that as it gets hotter, let's say it goes to 40 degrees, goes to 45 degrees, it's not going to go linear. It's not going to go to 3%. It's going to go up to 10, 20, 70%, right? So this isn't, it's not. It's not difficult to understand this in the sense that if you ever lit a fire, 
you know, it can go out, it can go out, and then, and then if, you, if you're attaching enough heat and flame to it, then the whole thing burns. So I had a little example of this in Australia about three years ago, wasn't it, when 20% of the, of the forest in the whole of Australia burned down. Um, so we can make a reasonable prediction that by 2030, uh, when it's three, four degrees hotter at an extreme, then we could be looking at 20%, 30%, even 60% of California's forest burning down. So a little example of this is, is when it was 49 degrees in Canada, in the, in the village where it was 49 degrees, which was off the charts, the biggest anomaly in temperatures ever recorded in, on the globe, uh, three days later, the village burned down because everything set fire or combusted. So, the third little element of this is, is, is this sort of horrific prediction of the future of the human niche. Because what it said is that one degrees above pre-industrial temperatures, you've got 1%, 1% of the Earth's surface is over 30 degrees, effectively, and inhabitable like the Sahara. So if you have a linear mindset, you might say, well, you know, at two degrees, if you double the temperature increase, two degrees, um, then the amount of uninhabitable Earth should increase proportionately, right? It should be about 2%, maybe 3%, you know, for bad luck. But as it happens at two degrees centigrade, it's, I think they said 30%, well, let's say for the sake of argument, 20, 30% of the Earth's surface will be effectively uninhabitable. So do you get that, right? So suddenly you've hit this S curve, you know, it's a little bit of an increase, it's a little bit of an increase, and then the increase, every unit of increase, causes this massive takeoff as you go up the vertical, this almost vertical line of the S-curve. And then, of course, at some point, you know, it, 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 it um, levels off again. This is enormously important. I can't say how, how important it is, um, but it's, it's important that we understand uh, how this works. In other words, the, the dynamics underneath the facts. So this connects very closely to the, to the, the phenomenon of tipping points, which I talked about uh, briefly in the last session. So just to reiterate again, what tipping point is, is, is a point at which the whole thing takes off of its own accord and you can't bring it back. Now, one of the reasons we have a problem with tipping points is they don't really exist in any objective sense in the social sphere in society. So, for instance, you know, if there's a, a big spate of murders in Leicester, um, you know, 100 people are murdered, it's a terrible thing, and, and society and the social services, the police, what have you, go into Leicester, and they come up with a program to bring it back to normal levels of merge, you know, one or two a year. Uh, so, for instance, they might, you know, put more money into it, they might arrest more criminal people, they'll do a public information campaign, blah, 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 and, and then they bring it back. So 99% of human experience, particularly for our generation, is that's the way the world works. Something gets bad, and then you do something about it, and it comes back, and then, you know, everything's okay again. That's not how physics works. How physics works, and this is absolutely objective, you know, the basic principle of physics is there's a tipping point in a physical system, 
because it's a physical system, there's no reflexivity in it, you know, the, the ice doesn't have a conscience, it's not open to negotiation, uh, and you totally lose lose the, the, the situation. It goes off uh, of its own accord, like the murders go up to 1,000 and 10,000 um, if, if it happened on, on, a, on a social level. Okay, so the obvious example of this, which is irrefutable, is if you warm the Arctic up, which is what's happening obviously with carbon emissions, then the ice melts, that's pretty obvious, and that releases, um, makes more of the sea uh, visible to the sun, and the sea is darker than the ice. I uh, can't really dispute that. So obviously the the ice, the heat, the, the sea is going to warm up, and that's going to create a temperature increase, and then more ice is going to disappear, which is going to create an even bigger temperature increase, and it's exponential. It gets hotter and hotter. So the stats are 70% of the volume of the ice in the Arctic that disappeared in the, over the last 30 years, so you don't need to be a genius to work out what the peer-reviewed paper is saying, which is it will be gone in the summer in around a decade or so. And similarly, as I mentioned with the with the Amazon, it's a self-perpetuating self uh, ecosystem. The reason the trees are there is because it rains. The reason it rains is because the trees are there and they evaporate the water. There's nothing particular about Brazil that makes there need to be a uh, Amazon rainforest. It's because it exists, because it exists. So, so at a tipping point, which apparently is around 20-25%, um, the the uh, area will cannot sustain that, that that system and the whole thing dies back, whether you like it or not. Okay, so the third uh, element, and again, this is massively underpublicized, but again, again it's as I understand it is a no-brainer, is when you put carbon into the atmosphere, it doesn't effectively the following day create a temperature increase. Now, a little analogy here is is the you know our, our cancer example. Our cancer example is you know there's a guy, there's a real man type guy, night fifties guy, he's got a lump in his in his body. He doesn't think it is anything, and um, so he doesn't go to the doctor. When he goes to a doctor, um, it's too late and he dies. So he should have gone. He should have gone early. Um, and this is what you hear on the adverts all the time, you know, go to your doctor, get checked up. If you find cancer early, you'll survive. So the same thing applies to the human race in the sense that, uh, you know, we have this lump in the body, we have extreme weather, it's pretty bad, but it doesn't look that bad. But the fact of the matter is, is it's not like that. Uh, there's uh, increase, the increase in how terrible the weather is going to get is already locked in. Uh, it's going to get a lot worse. Um, so we're not, when we look at the effects of the carbon, uh, putting carbon into the atmosphere, we don't need to look at what it is now because we've got to look at what it is in going to be in the next 10, 20 years because that's, uh, that's already locked in. So this isn't just some fake theory, the peer-reviewed papers on it, you can look them up. So there's three elements, I mean there's several other elements, but there's three elements that have this delayed, create this delayed effect. So the first one is what's called the carbon lag. It's pretty obvious to put carbon into the atmosphere. Um, the carbon that we are having the effect of now is was put into the atmosphere for the sake of argument about 10 years ago. So 
the effect of the carbon for the last 10 years has yet to come through. And the effect of that, there's actually numbers on it, it's around half a degree centigrade increase is locked in because of carbon. There's some discussion around it, about it. Some people think it's only 0 0.2, 0 0.3. Some people think it could be a whole one degrees. But it stands to reason that it's not like, it's not immediate. The second thing is, is um, global dimming. So it's a little bit complicated, but the pollution which is put into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels like coal and what have you, uh, puts all these polluting uh, aerosols or part tiny particles into the atmosphere. It's not difficult to understand that that blocks the sun's rays. So it reduces the effect of global warming. So as we get rid of coal and stop having carbon emissions uh, emitting, paradoxically, that temporarily will heat up the earth because all this pollution quite rapidly in a matter of a year or two uh, will fall to the earth and uh, you'll get extra sun's rays. So again, there's papers on it and the stats are that once this happens, we need to add between 0.5 and 1 degree centigrade of global warming. Um, and the last one is the Arctic. They put in the Arctic saying once the Arctic is melted in the summer, it's going to add 0.4 degrees uh, centigrade to global warming because you're going to have this massive expanse of water and that's going to attract more heat uh, through uh, the dark water, as I explained a few minutes ago. Um, so this is a massive bombshell, assuming you can get your head around understanding it or at least accepting it because on the face of it we've got one maybe two degrees centigrade of of warming already locked into the system uh, which takes us over two degrees centigrade without even taking into account uh, that humans aren't obviously going to suddenly stop putting carbon into the atmosphere uh, tomorrow so you've got obviously the added effect of that so the second thing I want to talk about in this um, session is the conservatism of scientists, the conservatism of science communication, uh, documents that come out of scientific institutions or the UN and, and what have you. Um, this is, how can I put it, <laughs> beyond description important because what comes out of these institutions and from these people creates what you might call the cultural baseline is what what they talk about on all the news and what the ngos talk about and therefore what 80 90 percent of the world talks about when they're thinking about the degree of risk and horror that's coming down the road so if this is wrong then it basically it has a massive structural effect on our ability to understand what's going on um, and it is wrong. Um, from a social science point of view on this, this shouldn't be at all unexpected. Human beings are not God. They have biases, they have cultures, they have agendas, they have egos, they experience hope and fear, uh, they're political animals and such like. Um, if we were just talking about, you know, moss or some completely innocuous scientific process then the bias would be next to zero because there's nothing to be biased about but when you're talking about something that is massively political 
in terms of you know challenging the corporate class and when you're talking about something that's enormously existentially challenging i.e the collapse of society it's a total no-brainer from a social research point of view that people are going to uh, alter how they communicate so let's go through some of the dynamics here um, as you'll remember there was an article in the compensation magazine as I mentioned in the first talk, uh, where three scientists said that, that they didn't know of any scientists at, um, at the Paris conference of 2015 who thought that we would be able to stay under 1.5 degrees. Now, interestingly enough, I had a private interview with one of the authors of this, and he said um, they don't want to rock the boat. That was his explanation. He said, the reason the scientists wouldn't come straight with the global public is because they don't want to rock the boat. And he then explained it in more structural terms. He said, you know, just about all climate scientists in the world, uh, the establishment ones anyway, are white, middle class, from the global north, tenured professors at the world's most elite universities. In other words, they're a tiny slither, a minute slither of, of the world's population in terms of culture, uh, social status and what have you. So it should come no surprise that they um, they have particular ways of operating. They are heard, as you might say. No one wants to rock the boat because no one else is rocking the boat. You don't want to be shamed by your colleagues. You don't want to be ostracized. Uh, last thing you want to do is lose your job. You know, you just want a quiet life. This is entirely human. It's not the greatest thing about human beings, but it's a widespread phenomenon. Um, and this is sort of similar to something else that happens in society, um, which I will call the shy Tory effect. I think that's actually what it's called, or shy Tories. So this is some phenomenon in the UK, but I think it probably exists in, in America as well. Uh, so if you're a researcher and you ask someone on a questionnaire or over an interview, say, are you likely, you know, are you going to vote for the Tory party in the next election? Let's say, you know, 35% of people will say yes. But the actual number who are going to vote for the Conservative party is, for the sake of argument, like 40%. Why is that? Because 5% of the people have actually lied to you because they don't want it to be known that they vote for the Tories because they like to think of themselves as, you know, not selfish individuals or whatever, and, but secretly they, they are, and when they get into the polling booth, they're going to vote for the Tories because no one's going to know. Um, so this is a systematic thing. There's nothing critical about it. It's, you know, run-of-the-mill social scientific practice that you need to take that into account. So when it comes out at 35%, the polling company or whatever, you know, to simplify somewhat, will say, right, so we expect, we predict, an accurate prediction is to say 40% of the population will vote for the, for, the, for the Tories. And I think something similar just happened in the elections in America where they thought not many Republicans would vote for Trump. And obviously, like, secretly, you know, a lot of people, and a significant number of people will say they're not going to vote for Trump, but they will because they secretly like the guy, uh, but they're gonna, not going to publicly admit it. 
So, you know, I'm not moralising about it, I'm not trying to criticise it, I'm just saying this is just a phenomenon and if you want to know accurately what's going to happen in the future, you need to take account of it. So let's call this the shy scientist effect, okay? Um, so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of microdynamics there. Um, as I said, people want to keep their jobs, not being ashamed, not wanting to admit bad news, being addicted to some sort of hope hypothesis that if they lie, people will, you know, maintain their hope, such like. Um, a second one is, is a lot more familiar, which is political interference. So most people know this, particularly most progressive people, that institutions are affected by power relations and um, those with power in society will influence the communication of, of, of information if it's politically sensitive. So it should come as no surprise that you know the corporate lobby will try and uh, influence what scientists say, and more specifically the IPCC, uh, the sort of official global body on on uh, information about about the climate crisis. Uh, their reports have to go through Saudi Arabia and Russia and various other uh, autocratic sort of oil regimes. So it stands to reason that obviously they'll get watered down. Okay, so so far so so, so good as you as you might say. But the real problem here is a lot more uh, complicated, and, uh, but it's massively insidious in the sense that it's the I think the core problem is a little bit complicated, so I'm going to I'm going to um, give an, an example, an analogy first of all. But it relates to this issue of certainty. So yeah, you know, if you're going to make a prediction, you want to be certain, right? Well, maybe, maybe not, and maybe it's more important to be accurate. And um, being certain and being accurate are two different things, as I'll explain. So here's an analogy, right? You know, to make it a little bit of narrative colour. <laughs> Let's say there's a medieval village. There's, you know, it's quite isolated from the rest of the country. Um, it's fairly self-sufficient. It lives mainly off uh, sheep. There's a hundred sheep in four or five fields and it's surrounded by woodland, uh, deep forest uh, where wolves live and there's three or four shepherds out one day and they see three wolves come out of the woods and that's clear, right? So they're absolutely certain they can see uh, the three wolves because they can see them. So it's empirical, as you might say. It's certain. However, they also know through doing uh, what you might call social scientific research is that over the last 20 years when free wolves come out of the forest um, there's going to be an average of 40 to 60 wolves come out of the forest in, in not, not too distant future over the future hours because they work in packs so the real reality of wolves is not that they they are in packs of three that's very unlikely they're usually in packs of of 40 to 60, let's say. So if you did a normal distribution curve on the pack of wolves, you might say, well, there's a 10% chance there's going to be about five wolves. You know, these things do happen. But the 80% scenario is it's going to be, you know, 40 to 60, let's say. But there's also a 10% chance that it's a very big pack, right? There's, there's 100 wolves. Um, so what should they do about it? When they run up the hill, they're going to tell the rest of 
options. They go, look, we can only see five walls, uh, three walls, whatever it is. Uh, so, you know, it's no big deal, you know, it's something to be a bit worried about. Or they're going to say, you know, so they're going to say, we're certain, we're absolutely certain we could be seeing those three to five walls. Or they're going to say, look, you know, we all know that if there's five walls, it's almost certainly going to be around uh, 40 to 60 walls. So it's a major situation. In other words, the most likely scenario is not the most certain scenario. The most certain scenario is there's three to five walls because you can see them. Um, the most likely scenario, though, of course, is there's going to be 40 to 60. But even more importantly, as we'll discuss in a minute, is there's a 10% chance there's going to be 100 walls because it's a big pack. Now, as it happens, if there's three to five walls, you don't really need to do anything. They might kill a sheep or two. If there's 40 to 60 walls, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a major, major problem. They might lose 50% of those 100 sheep. They're going to lose, say, 50 sheep, you know, maybe 70. But there's going to be a few left. So, yeah, this, this is the critical point. There's 100 walls. What 100 walls mean is that the whole of the sheep disappear. Now, if you're in farming, it's a bit like the leak example, you're basically not only losing all your sheep, you're losing all your sheep forever because for the sake of argument, you're not going to have enough money. Yeah. You're not going to have enough money um, to buy any more. In other words, it's, it's existential. It's the end. It's catastrophic. It's the end of the, uh, it's the, end of the village forever. Now, you don't need to be, you know, again, you don't need to be a genius to work out what the most important data in there is. The most important data certainly isn't the three walls, you can see. And it isn't even that 50 walls are going to come down the road uh, and eat, you know, out of the forest and they eat your sheep. The most critical data is if there's a not insignificant possibility there's going to be 100 wolves and that's going to destroy the village forever. What does that mean? Obviously, it means it's a total emergency. The whole of the, of the village needs to mobilise themselves. They all go out and, you know, they kill the wolves as they come out of the, of the forest and they save the uh, sheep and the economic existence, the very existence of the, of the village. So you can see here, this is the core, you know, head fuck, dare I say it, of the scientific community's communication, which is they're only really interested in certainty. And, you know, there's good reasons why certainty uh, might want to be communicated and you can talk to science and epistemological scholars on this, as the phrase goes, and they'll tell you, yeah, certainty is important because in science you want to be certain before you go around, you know, saying something exists. And that's fair enough. But when you're dealing with real-world risk, particularly when you're dealing with critical risk, in other words, you know, the end of the system, i.e. death, and arguably endless death, then um, then obviously you want to be looking at critical risk. So just give two little examples of here, which, you know, are no-brainers. If an engineer goes to a bridge and there's a crack in the bridge, you might say, well, look, you know, there's a 5% chance that that's going to, to you know, lead to the bridge collapsing. Uh, but there's a 50% chance that there's going to be a lot of cracks and it might rumble a bit. Um, but all I can see at the moment is a crack. Well, obviously, that person will end up in prison if they don't actually raise the alarm because a 5% chance over the coming year of that, of that bridge collapsing is catastrophic because it's going to lead to a massive loss of life. So even though, 
even though it's just a little crack, then you're legally and morally obliged to call the alarm. So, uh, um, a famous scientist, I forget his name, sort of said a similar point in one of his talks, one of the best talks on, on, on the crisis, and he said, you know, can you imagine you go to the, you go to the, the uh, airport and you're going to put your two kids on, on a plane as you can see their grandparents, and the attendant says, oh, I just need to let you know there was a 5% chance of the plane crashing because we've had a few problems with the engine. And he says, well, you know, we're not totally certain it's 5%. It could be 1. I mean, admittedly, it could be 10. But it's not very high, so, you know, don't worry about it. You're not going to go, oh, yeah, that's okay. It's only one chance in 20, you know. No, you're going to say, look, this is absolutely outrageous. You're off your head with your mad out of your head. You should be arrested. The executive of the company should be in prison. Um, it's a catastrophic risk. There's no way in a million years you're going to risk your kids unless you're some weird psychopath uh, on, um, on on a one in twenty chance. Okay, and as it happens, I, I actually looked up on the internet. I think the chances of a plane crashing is one in one in eleven million. Um, so why is that? Because <laughs> because it's would lead to a catastrophic loss of life. And dare I say, uh, airlines discovered in a good 30, 40 years ago that even a slight risk of a plane crashing would stop people from getting on board for obvious reasons. Okay, so this is like major, major stuff, okay? So in summary, what we need to think about here, and again, I want to emphasize that this is not some big critical conspiracy sort of point, right? This is standard analytical social scientific practice. But there's a structural bias in the communication by establishment scientists, by official world bodies on, 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 um, on what they say is going to happen in the future. And just for the record, you know, after this, listening to this, you can look up uh, a bunch of other dynamics, you know, this is by no means the only ones, but uh, the most significant ones. So, you know, I'm not no longer at King's College as, as a social scientist, but if I was there or if I was in the social science department, and if a social scientist listening to this, they might want to do this. Is that what, uh, what most important research at the moment would, would involve is, is getting a, a, a statistically significant number of science predictions from establishment scientists, you know, 100, 200, and then working out the degree to which they're conservative and doing a quantitative sort of average. So my sort of back of the envelope sort of analysis is as follows, which you know, may, be, uh, may be right, might be a bit wrong, but it's probably in the ballpark. So two data points. First of all, uh, 10, 15 years ago, the scientific consensus was we'd hit hitting 1.5 degrees centigrade by 2050. That was the official communication. Of course, privately, no doubt, they thought that was rubbish. But uh, and the official communication was that the ice would melt in the Arctic around 1,000, 2,100. Okay, and now it's 2,030, and obviously 1.5 is coming along in the next two to three years, definitely by 2030. So those are two massive data points of killer facts that have been completely, you know, massively wrong through the certainty bias of the scientific community, the free wolves coming out of, of the forest syndrome. Okay, so 
these are my predictions. So first of all, what we know from the article in the conversation is, is eight years ago, around a decade ago, uh, most scientists around the world already knew that 1.5 was locked Okay, so it's only been officially recognised. The UN a few weeks ago, as I've said, has said two degrees, uh, sorry, 1.5 degrees is no longer credible, which is, you know, official science speak for it's a dead duck. Uh, we're definitely going 1.5. So we know that there's a 10-year lag there. So what we can probably predict with some accuracy is the real situation is that two degrees centigrade is no longer credible and a scientist will come along in 2032 and admit that two degrees is no longer credible. So you see how that works. If you want to be smart, what you need to do is, is factor in this structural bias, which is massively significant. Okay, so the last example here is, is the situation with the Greenland ice sheets and Antarctica. So I talked to a guy called Jason Box, I think that's what he's called. So he's arguably the world's leading science expert into Greenland dozens of times and what have you. So I've been chat with him and I think he said it publicly that the Greenland ice sheet is now past the point of no return, the tipping point is definitely going to melt. No surprise that it's hot, the ice melts. I think it's five metres of sea level rise and now locked in uh, to, to um, uh, because of the, the degree of heat that there is in the Arctic. Now, <clears throat> I think you'll probably say that you was pretty sure this would happen like 10, 10 years ago. Um, so, again, you have this like, you know, for the sake of argument, 10 years back. So, the official scientific um, certainty package, as it were, on Antarctica is it's in the balance, um, particularly the West West Antarctica. Uh, that's, I think, something like 7 metres of sea level rise. Uh, as well. Um, the idea is, as you may know, that there's these massive glaciers and they're sort of blocked in at the moment, but once the front of them sort of slides into the sea, obviously the whole thing slides into the sea and arguably it's going to happen really, really quickly and, uh, and what have you. But from a sort of small analysis point of view, taking into account this inbuilt bias, we can say when they say it's not certain yet that the West Antarctica ice sheet is going to uh, melt. What we interpret that as is the most likely probability is that it is going to melt. Okay, It's not certain, right? But the most best prediction is it's now going to melt uh, for the reasons we've just discussed. So that gives you a sort of hopefully a deeper understanding of what we're looking at. We've got these raw killer facts, and uh, uh, but this gives you like the rules of the game, as you might say. Okay, so there's a bunch of other things to talk about as well, which I'll do in part two, and I'll speak to you then. Thanks.